0: Good morning. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 73 this morning, if you want to turn to Psalm 73 in your copy of God's Word. Um, as you probably already figured out, I'm not James Saxon. Uh, we had a last-minute change here, and so you're stuck with me this morning. Um, when I was on a mission trip one time, oh, it, we were in the Caribbean, and we went to a service, and the, we waited for the pastor to, or the preacher to arrive for about 15 to 20 minutes and I got home, and I told uh, the pastor, and the pastor was an austere man, and he said to me, son, you need to be ready to preach, pray, or die on any given occasion. <laughs> and that's all he said, and he walked out of the room. Uh, luckily, the, uh, the gentleman did show up to, to preach. But this morning, you are stuck with me. We will be in Psalm 73 this morning. This is a Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they had no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment." Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with folly. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one is awake, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we come to you, um, many of us in, in various situations as we Arrive this morning, and we have already come into your sanctuary and we worship. Father, I don't know where all the hearts in this room are this morning, but I do know this. We have all experienced what Asaph has experienced here. We've all experienced the bitterness of life and the bitterness of a fallen world. Father, apply this scripture to our heart by the Holy Spirit, and having heard it, change us in some way as we walk out of this room this morning. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This truth is on our lips. This truth we have heard repeated over and over by many believers. It's echoed in Christ in his Sermon on the Mount when he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And it's further developed by the Apostle Paul in Romans when he writes, For we know that all things work for the good of those who love God, And are called according to his purpose. So we do know. We do know. But Asaph in the next verse shows us an x-ray of his own heart. A glimpse into his own soul. When he says that his experience caused him to doubt God's goodness and fairness. He says in verses 2 and 3, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant When I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever, um, you don't have to nod or or raise your hand, but have you ever felt that way when your experience of the world, when your experience of seeing um, wickedness rewarded and wickedness prosper, have you ever felt your heart falter? Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, and yet you see the, you experience the prosperity of the wicked. I remember the first time I encountered this, or one of the earliest times I remember encountering this, I was in seventh grade, all boys school, private school, and I arrived at my seventh grade English class right before Chapel. And a friend of mine grabbed me by the arm on the way out, and he said, um, you know there's going to be a pop quiz today? And I said, well, you know, the very nature of the fact that it's a pop quiz, uh, I don't know there's going to be a pop quiz. He said, well, there's going to be one, and everybody has the answers. And I said, what? And he said, they're right here. And he showed them to me. And he said, do you want a copy of them? And I was like, uh, and the bell rang. He said, Sorry, gotta go. Stinks for you. Heads off to chapel. I, I follow. I'm walking across the quadrangle and I remember just brooding over this. Lord, Lord, the whole class has the answers. And they're gonna look like uh, scholars and I'm gonna look like a complete idiot. And yet I'm the one who didn't have the answers. I'm not the one who cheated. I don't remember what was the the topic of chapel that day. All I remember is just praying angrily to God, how can you let them get away with this? How can you let them do this? How can you allow this to go on? And those words, that wouldn't be the last time I'd ever said that in my life. And perhaps you've said that probably over something more significant than a little seventh grade pop quiz where everybody had the answers and were cheating. Perhaps you've seen somebody in your own life, they've taken taken advantage of you, and you said, God, how can you let them get away with that? Perhaps it was in a business deal where where some shady things went on, and and you were slighted, and they succeeded, and you're like, God, How can you let them get away with that? Perhaps that uh, you tried to do something the right way and and someone did something the wrong way and and everyone thought they were so wonderful and you said to yourself, God, how can you let them get away with that? We've all experienced it one time or another. The nice guy finishes last and if not addressed, that inward envy turns to outward envy profession, and we end up where the psalmist ends up in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. The NIV says it much better, I think. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure, and in vain I've washed my hands in innocence. We regret, we regret following hard after the Lord. So he begins with a statement, truly. God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart, and his, his heart slips down those muddy slopes of his experience and comes to rest at the feeling that surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. Which means one thing, his experience, his experience has caused him to doubt. God is indeed good to those who are pure in heart. That's where his limit leads and where ours can lead as well. And the experience that drives him to that point is found in verses 4 through 12. You can go ahead and look at that. I'm just going to briefly go, over, go through it, go through his lament. In verses 4 and 5, he wrestles over the fact that many who deny God seem insulated from the life, the, the pains of life. Then in verses 6 and 7, he says that that insulation from life's pain makes this people think that they are somehow untouchable, which creates pride and arrogance within them and leads them to violence t- towards others. And then in verses 8 and 9, this violence is expressed in their hateful words towards others and their foolish talk that ultimately, ultimately mocks God. And then in verses 10 through, through 11, when the people see that God isn't striking this guy dead, they question whether God really knows and really sees and really is there and is really just, which can lead them to mock God just like the others are mocking God. And Asaph stands there with his mouth open, wondering when the lightning is going to fall. When is God going to bring down the boom? When is he going to judge these people? Hold on, hold on, where's the lightning? Where's the thunder? Aren't you going to zap them? We see it all the time in the news, especially this week. If you haven't watched what's happening in Afghanistan and thought, what, 20 years? And you haven't watched and said, how many, how many lives, how many Afghanistan lives, how many American soldiers' lives, how many limbs were lost? I personally have a former student who lost both legs in Afghanistan. And you think, how could this be? And these people are threatening. They're overrunning the country and they're threatening once again. You're like, how long, Lord? So we see it all the time. Brutal dictators who die in old age rather than by the capital punishment they deserve for the atrocities that they committed. A regime that goes unchecked More toward home college athletes who violate the rights of others and get a slap on the wrist. Back again to ISIS, who brutally destroys the people of God, committing atrocity after atrocity, and they always seem to make gains. But we see it in our own lives, intentionally passed over, marginalized, and excluded because of our convictions. When we've done something right, students, when you've you've done things right, the right way, and you get a lower grade than the people that cheated, when you've done your best to have integrity in your relationships before marriage, and yet the ones that seem to compromise those relationships always seem to be popular, and it can weigh on us heavily. Enough to make us say, at least in our heart or in the privacy of our own car, (laughs) surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. Is it worth it? Is it really worth it? Now that I've depressed you, (laughs) the turning point begins in verses 15 and 16. He doesn't leave us here. He said, if I, had, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I had thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. What does that mean? It means that he kept his doubts to himself and he wrestled through them, whether he wrestled through them with, with close confidants, those who were wise, through prayer, before the Lord. I'm sure all of these. He did not do it publicly, he was the public worship leader. It seems like every day now there's there's some public figure coming out with, I'm deconstructing my faith. I haven't figured it out yet, but I know I'm deconstructing my faith. That's not helpful. Public figures should be wrestling with those things with close confidence. Aware that, the same thing that Asaph was aware of, that they can sway a lot of people when they haven't figured it out yet. Case in point C.S. Lewis when his wife Joy died he wrote a grief observed to process his own pain to process his own sorrow and it was so raw and so real that when he published it he published it under the name N.W. Clerk with instructions that upon his death that it should be published under his name he wrestled to the end To the point where he, he returned to his faith and he embraced his faith and he understood there would be things that he did not understand and could not understand on this side of heaven. But he did not want those wrestlings to compromise the faith of someone else. And that's what Asaph is doing here. He's not hiding his trouble. It's okay to be troubled in our hearts, and it's okay to wrestle with others. But what Asaph is not doing is he's not saying, hey, I haven't figured this out, and God's pretty unfair. He doesn't stay at the first part of his lament. He turns to the second half. He comes to a realization. And how does he do that? He does that by coming into the sanctuary. He says, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. He got perspective, and that perspective was realizing a couple of different things. And these these few things can help us when our present experiences rattle our trust in the goodness of God. First, the first thing he realized, he realized that his everyday struggles were a blessing. Look at verses 18 through 20. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. It's because Asaph has struggles that he turns to the Lord. It's the struggles that press him back to the Lord. It's our struggles that press us back to the Lord as much as we may resent them at times. It's what causes us to turn from the autopilot of self-sufficiency in our daily life. I've got this. I've got enough to handle this. I've got enough money to take care of this. I've got enough help to handle it. I don't need God. And it breaks us down to the point of saying, I don't have this. There's nothing I could do to cover this. And I desperately need God. He recognizes that the prosperity of the wicked is actually a slippery place. It makes them fall into ruin. And then when when, when the end comes, they're destroyed in the moment because they haven't had the chance to let their despair and their sorrow press them to the eternal question of, where will I be when I die? What's after this? Because they're too busy living for the moment. They're too busy living in the right now. And nothing has rattled them. So Asaph sees the blessing in that. And he says in verse 23, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. He realizes the blessing of God's presence with him. That as difficult as life is, there's one thing that's true. God's not going to abandon him. He's going to be right there with him. And that, to him, is worth everything. In his trouble, he's learned to depend on God day by day and moment by moment. And that's what our troubles are intended to do. A trouble-free existence is a snare. And that is that our troubles press us back to our need of God so that we never, we never can convince ourselves that we can get through this life without him. The second thing he realized is that he realized he was living in the middle and not the end. What do I mean by that? In every play, there are three acts. Well, not in one-act plays, so sorry. But in most plays, there are three acts. And the middle act is always the worst part. It's the despair. It's the point where the hero has his back against the wall. And there doesn't seem like there's any hope left. And you're wondering, how are they ever going to get out of this? It's what keeps you reading. It's what keeps you watching. I remember back in, uh, was it 1980 when Empire Strikes Back came out. Uh, Spoiler alert for those in the room, I'm gonna reveal some stuff here. So, if you haven't seen it, uh, you know, it came out in 1980, so I'm sorry. (laughs) So I'm sitting there. I watched A New Hope as a really, really small child and loved it back when it was just Star Wars, right? And every kid gets excited to see the good guys win. And then I experienced Empire Strikes Back. Okay. So the, the heroes are captured, they're tortured. Han Solo's put in carbonite and shipped off the job of the Hut, whoever that is. Luke gets his hand cut off, and then he finds out that Darth is his father. I screamed no at the same time Luke did, okay? This was wrong. Somebody got it wrong. I walked out of that movie thinking, that is the worst movie I've ever seen. I've since come to appreciate that movie. It's actually my favorite movie because it's the most real. That's where we live. We live in a fallen world, let's not not forget that. We live in the middle. The eternal resolution is coming. We experience the already but not yet. We know there's victory. We know there's victory in Christ. Christ, by his resurrection, has said, it's done. It's over. I've broken the power of death, hell, and the grave. But you must wait a little while till the full consummation. Hope is coming, but we live in the middle. And we have to remember that the middle is not the end. I love that uh, bumper sticker that says, uh, everything will be all right in the end, and if everything is not all right, it's not the end. That's not true for unbelievers, but it is very true for us. If we begin to say God is not just based on the middle, we're judging with an unjust judgment. If God said that he's going to bring us to a glorious end, if Romans 8's telling us that there's good in the end, and we say, no, there isn't, we're not at the end. And I'm not promising that end will be in this life, but I do promise that end will be in eternity. And I do promise that end will be before him, and that's what he understands. That's what Asaph understands when he comes into the sanctuary. He sees that eternal perspective. Whatever he has to deal with in life, whatever he has to go through here, he knows that he has a sure eternity with the Lord. Not, that's not what he can say about those who are striving, the wicked who are striving. He went into the sanctuary and he discerned their end. And what is that end? Verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for the believer, they shall not perish, but have eternal life. When we we assume our losses and our pains now are the end of our story, we are completely wrong. Because of what Christ did, the end of our story is the best part. There's no happily ever after in the middle, There's only happily ever after in the last act. And that's what Asaph means when he he says in verse 24, You guide me with your counsel. That's what the Lord does for us in the middle. He continues to guide us and remind us it's not over yet. And he says, Afterward, you will receive me to glory. That's the end. And that's the promise. And that is where every desire of the heart is fulfilled. Everything that you missed out on here is a shadow compared to what you're going to get when you see Jesus face-to-face. You will be more fulfilled than you've ever been fulfilled in your entire life. Every longing, every hope, every dream that you've ever had will will resolve in the the face of Jesus. Whatever you've lost here is nothing compared to the glory that you'll see when you see Jesus face to face. That's what Asaph realizes. And finally, thirdly, he realized that he too was in need of great mercy. Let's go back to the uh, opening story. Um, As a seventh grader, your sense of injustice is pretty high, especially with your parents. That's not fair. And then the parents say, oh, you want to, know, you want to see fair? I'll show you fair. <laughs> How many of you have said that? No, no show, no show of hands. Yes, <laughs> Randy's back there testifying. Our sense of justice is pretty high as, as young people. Our sense of justice is pretty high as human beings. And we rank life and we rank the injustices that come against us here. We rank the injustices that we bring to other people Somewhere here, maybe down here. (laughs) One of the things that I came to realize later, see, I, I went to church. My family went to church back when I was in seventh grade. I didn't know the gospel from a hole in the ground. I didn't understand. I said the words, Jesus died for my sins. But I didn't understand I didn't understand mercy, I didn't understand grace. I didn't understand the cross. none of that made any sense to me. until later, when I was 17, that God stripped everything from me and got me to the place of seeing my ultimate need for him. I'm crying out for justice in seventh grade when I deserved justice, because I did more than cheat on a pop quiz. My heart was rebellious against the Lord. Just by standing there breathing in and out, I'm an object of wrath, and I had no clue, not one, that I deserved the justice of God. And yet Christ in his goodness through the cross took the justice I deserved. Asaph begins to see this too. He starts out by saying, God is good to those who are pure in heart. Then he laments, Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure, but finally he says he says in verses twenty-one and twenty-two, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast before you. How many of you have wrestled in prayer like a beast? Accusing God, yelling, screaming, tear filled. Asaph's heart wasn't as pure as he thought. He needed mercy, and so do we. Sometimes God doesn't bring justice on the wicked because he's given them time to repent, just like he gave me time to repent, just like he gave you time to repent, just like those people in the world that we want to see the boom lowered on, he's given them time to repent because we deserve grace and mercy as much as they deserve grace and mercy. We don't deserve grace and mercy, but God lavishes it on us. And what our heart's prayer needs to be is that those who see prosperity in their wickedness will wake up. That they'll wake up as from a dream and they will see that their prosperity only leads to eternal separation from God. It is not Asaph that needed to feel and need to be pitied. It is those who don't see their need who needed to be pitied. And prayed for. He wants to bring us to the point of saying what verse 25 says. Whom have I in heaven but you. And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He wanted to expose their hearts. He wants to expose our hearts. And cause us to realize that without grace, without Jesus, and without the cross. We don't have a pure heart. We don't have a steadfast heart. And if it weren't for the righteousness of Christ, we could not stand before him. We could not stand before the Lord. And he begins to understand this idea that God is who who is his true strength. Because he says in verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see what happened. He's gone from saying, woe is me because I've been good and I deserve God to bless me. But he isn't. To... I'm blessed because even though my heart fails, the Lord does not. And that's what Asaph and we can say. Verse 28 says, But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. It's it's gone from being about what Asaph does in his own strength to being about what God can do in and through Asaph. And this should prompt us not to envy the wicked but to really want them to see that God is their refuge, not their wealth, not their prosperity, not their cunning. So what? What does this mean for us? The worship we experience this morning should give us perspective. Coming before other believers in prayer should give us perspective. Coming before them and receiving godly counsel should give us perspective. If you come to the sanctuary every week to be entertained, you've come here for the wrong reason. This is not about entertainment. This is about laying your heart bare before the Lord and letting the Lord search you and know you and remind you once again why you said yes to Jesus all those years ago. And if you haven't said yes to Jesus, I'd encourage you to say yes to Jesus. Because one day it'll all be over and You will awake or God will awake as if from slumber, not that he slumbers or sleeps. And just like you forget your dream after 15 minutes, your is nothing. I do not know you. That is not an eternity that you want to spend. Because just like every hope and dream and wish and desire will be fulfilled in Christ, the opposite of that is that there will be no hope. There will be no dreams you will live beneath the crushing weight of the despair of not being in the presence of God for an eternity. As much as fire sounds bad, imagine the worst, most despairing day of your life and then amplify that times a million because without God and without his presence, there is no hope. So if you are here today and you have not come to Christ, I urge you, talk to me, talk Paul talked to another believer, that you can get that done today. But for those of us who know Christ, where is our heart today? Are you at the first part of the psalm where where you are saying, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, and you you just kind of mumble it and let it go by, and, and it doesn't really hit you in your heart? Are you in the middle part where you say, All in vain have I kept my heart pure. Is that your struggle today? That you're bristling against an injustice that you want to see corrected? Or have you come to the place where you've embraced the words, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever? The bitter experiences of life are meant to drive us to Christ. They're meant to drive us through our pain to the cross. And it is at the cross where we see our ultimate joy. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to worship. And I pray that we don't worship flippantly or easily, but we take the words that we're going to sing with great heaviness, that they will minister to our heart as we sing before the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we commit our heart and our lives to you. If there's any bitterness that we experience in life, from the slights that we experience, from the experiences of of, uh, being uh, looked over, passed over, scorned, Father, I pray that you would minister to our heart by the reminder that in Christ we're made whole and that in him is all the hope and all the joy that we could ever imagine. Lord, inhabit our praises. Be with us in our worship as we close today. In Jesus' name.